big data and analytics, that was not the awareness, right? So I think, so I had to cut my teeth and I lost a few teeth in the process, but I think it was pretty good learning. You know, I always go back to that moment where I got that call and it, it was quite revealing of the cultural barriers that one has to go through to drive technical transformation and digital transformation. Welcome to the Disruptive Innovators Champions of Digital Business podcast, where IT and digital leaders from around the world talk about their careers, their inspiration, and their vision for the future of digital business. I'm your host, David Wright. The world of digital business is evolving faster than ever, and I want this to be a place where digital business champions create a village to band together and help each other navigate the ever-changing terrain. Disruptive Innovators features conversations with CIOs and digital leaders from around the world, diving into their personal backstory, career, their current role, trends they've been seeing, and their vision for the future, personally, professionally, and otherwise. This podcast is made for people who are seeing how quickly the digital business landscape is evolving. Those who recognize that it takes a village of trusted advisors to navigate this ever-changing terrain. People who enjoy listening to high-level discussions surrounding what it means to be a leader, real-world examples of challenges faced, and industry-specific strategies leveraged to create exceptional business outcomes. This episode is brought to you by Disruptive Innovations, a leading tech consulting firm that helps enterprise organizations with their IT strategy, process optimization, and workflow improvement. Contact them and find out more at disruptiveinnovations.net. Good afternoon, friends. David Wright here, and I am your host of the Disruptive Innovators Champions of Digital Business Podcast. This afternoon, I am lucky enough to be joined by Sastri Dervasula. Sastri, pleasure to have you on. My pleasure, David. Nice to be here. Sastri, for those of our listeners who may not know, can you tell everyone a little bit about your current role? Yeah, so I lead the Global Technology and Client Services Organization at TIAA. TIA, the financial services firm that's focused on retirement, wealth management, asset management globally. And we lead lifetime income solutions for our clients. And I have the responsibility to lead the global technology and client services, which roughly is about 50% of the organization from a people point of view. I'm part of the committee and report to the CEO, Tashana Brown Becker. Very cool. TIA, household name for sure. It's an honor to have you on. Shastri, we like to start our episode with just one piece of actionable advice you might look to leave our listeners with today. Yeah, I think my actionable advice would be reskilling and learning, David, with everything that's changing, whether it's technology changing, businesses changing, frankly, the definition of people leadership is changing, generations changing. I think if there's one thing that I want the listeners to walk away with, that would be the reskilling revolution that we are in that is probably more important than ever at this point. That's great advice. It's funny too, because I have some newer associates in my firm. They're learning about a lot of this newer technology, drinking through a fire hose. But in doing so, the opportunity is so great because so much of it is so new that the playing ground is really even. So I think there's a good opportunity too, even for those who weren't technologists classically to break into the space as well. That's right. Sestri, let's talk a little bit about your backstory. So. One of the more renowned global IT executives that we've had on the Disruptive Innovators podcast, honestly, how did you start out and how did you get to the point in your career that you're at today? So I have been doing the CIO and CTO roles in 
several companies before coming here, David. So I joined on the Valentine's Day last year, TIA, with lots of love. But before coming here, I was at McKinsey and Company leading the global technology and digital capabilities for McKinsey. The longest innings I had in my career was at American Express, where I started as an engineer and eventually became the head of a number of capabilities as a CIO and chief technology officer. Had the pleasure of leading the global data and analytics at American Express. I had the opportunity to lead the digital data analytics in Marshall McLennan. If I go back to the roots, the common ingredient in my entire career has been leading technology-driven roles in companies that are almost 100 years old, if not a lot older than that. So that's been the common thread. The youngest company that I've worked for was McKinsey and Company, which is 98, 99 years old. The oldest is 175 plus year old payments company, which is American Express. The TIA, it's a 105 year old company. So that's what I dig, like driving that transformation with technology in a large company with a lot of heritage, a lot of legacy in its technology stack, people, culture, and where tech is not the first stop for folks working at the company or even the clients or customers of the firm. So that's where I really thrive and that's what energizes me. Super cool. Huge fan of American Express too and everything you guys did there. We're a big Amex shop ourselves. Sastu, what would you say is one of the most important things that you learn over the course of your journey personally and or professionally? And what was life like before learning it and after learning it? I think being the coder originally who became a leader, there is a lot of graduation that you go through. And it's a continuing process, frankly. While I'm still a coder at heart and I still want to get my hands dirty, I have the obligation to lead thousands and thousands of people in the organization. So I think if I have to look back at all the learnings I had and take the most critical learning, that would be building diverse teams. Just the, the power of diverse teams, be it backgrounds or skills or their gender and ethnicities and their belief systems. It's just when you have diverse set of skills and thoughts and backgrounds at the table, that's really, I think, a game-changing and an unlocking experience for the teams, for the companies, for technology, for businesses. So I found it along the way, especially I'm a very passionate advocate for gender diversity in technology. Now, I still remember when I started my career, David, it was obviously a lot of men and a lot of engineering staff was basically men. And when we started adding gender diversity, and this was before it was a predominant part for businesses, right? So as I started entering some of the ally forums where you could just walk into a women in tech forum as an ally, and it was quite uncomfortable in the beginning because I didn't know what to say, what not to say, and it's a lot of learning. And I would even get the stares or questions like, what are you doing here in the beginning? And obviously the world has evolved a lot, I think for good. And I think I see that, you know, that is a forethought for a lot of the companies, obviously, but we still have a lot of work to do. But if I reflect back, I had the pleasure and opportunity to be part of a nonprofit called Girls in Tech in its, from its early days. It started with a couple of thousand people by the founder, which has grown into 100,000 members across the globe, around 50 countries. And I, I sit on the board of Girls in Tech. So I see a lot of different challenges that women still face in technology, but the progress we made more importantly. So I think if I crystallize my learnings, the learnings I had, the opportunities I had in making sure that I build diverse teams, I'm super proud that 
50% of my direct reports are women in technology and client services. So that I really recommend to a lot of mentees that I have that are aspiring leaders that make sure that you have diversity in gender or diversity in ethnicity or diversity in backgrounds, diversity in thoughts, but make sure that you have diverse voices at the table. The power of that coming together, each can underrepresent or overrepresent that in the human age. So it's a pretty powerful unlocking mechanism. You know, I love that you described walking into that first forum as an ally and that experience and the response that you got. I feel like a lot of folks might be discouraged by that, to be honest with you. Or, But the beauty of what you did was you took action. I'm involved with some similar committees, particularly on the DE&I side. And I found that A, I need to continue to educate myself, right? I have to continue to be part of the solution. And then I also have to take action. I can't just be politicking about it. What am I doing to change the problem? It's clear that you were taking action then to start to make a difference. And now you're effectively changing the way what your workforce looks like. So I just, I applaud you for that. It's important, David, that as I thought about it a lot over the years, there is definitely a professional belief system, right? That you fundamentally have to believe that as a business, this is the right thing to do. But I think what's more important to keep that stamina to go through that journey as an ally or as an advocate or as a woman in technology who's like leading that effort is to have a personal belief system. So my personal belief system for me comes from my mom. My dad passed away when I was young and my mom brought us up as kids and I was 14. So I saw that a woman working in the workforce makes a huge difference, not just for herself, but for an entire family and a generation. So that personal belief system, once you have it, you just keep at it. And then you see the dividends and you actually build great teams and you get great followership in the industry through that. Yeah, similar experience in that my mom was the president and CEO of a nonprofit out of New Jersey called the Center for Great Expectations. They behavioral health organization, they support women and children that often come from pretty traumatic situations. and seeing her impact the lives of all these women and children over the course of her life and the way that people would talk about the impact that she made, that it inspires me. Definitely ingrained in my belief system for sure. Sastra, what about a time that you were challenged or that a project failed or something that sticks out in your mind as a time that maybe you stumbled, but you took away a profound lesson coming out of that instant? Is there something that sticks out in your mind perhaps? Quite a few, David, obviously, when you work for a large hundred plus year old company and you're representing technology, first of all, technology in any large company other than tech companies is a cost center. And we've gone through an evolution as an industry, especially in financial services, where we see technology as not just a cost center, an enabler, a growth mechanism, a business model itself. So I think we've gone through that in various industries. But as you go through that, the journey is quite challenging and quite painful, right? I think technologists often gravitate to technical problems and they get a lot of pleasure in solving those problems. But most of the problems in these companies are not technical. They are cultural. They are business driven. There is a lot of economical pressures from external forces, especially if you're a publicly listed company. So I've had a few. I think I still remember one where I had this big technical strategy. This was like a, for a big data ecosystem that I was proposing. And I went into uh, a senior leader discussion, C-suite discussion, and had this big passionate pitch. And I, I saw it really good. You know, a lot of people supported me. And then right after the call, I get a call from my boss. My boss said, the person that you presented to wants you to be fired. 
I'm like, wow, what did I do? Your business case is not solid. I'm like, wow, okay. So let's revisit the business case. And we went back to the problem was when you drive a technology transformation that is driven by re-engineering of old systems and risks that you're mitigating, the business case is not truly driven by a PNL growth at that time, right? So you've got to do some of these mandatory things in any uh, large company. And it's a very hard thing to explain. So you have to contextualize the risk. You have to contextualize the business impact. You have to contextualize what would be the do nothing scenario like and what would be do something scenario like. Of course, you can modulate the something, whether it's option A or option B or option C. So that was like probably my biggest lesson. If this was luckily in the early days of my career as a leader, and I was like, okay, I'll take a lot of inspiration. So every time I go in front of the board or in front of a big senior leaders or clients or even my own organization, I try to add the context first. I think it's important to keep the context in mind because we're not doing technology for the sake of technology innovation in a non-tech company. It's about the context that you set, be it risks or business growth or new innovations, et cetera. The world is much different now, obviously. I know everybody understands the power of technology. And if you are on legacy technical systems, you have a lot of technical debt. Yeah, by default, you're going to suffer. I think most companies recognize that. But you go back to the early days of the internet or early days of big data and analytics, that was not the awareness, right? So I think, so I had to cut my teeth. And I lost a few teeth in the process, but I think it was pretty good learning. You know, I always go back to that moment where I got that call and it it was quite revealing of the cultural barriers that one has to go through to drive technical transformation and digital transformation. Yeah. You said a ton of good stuff there. It's funny that you mentioned the significance of contextualizing. So I was having this conversation with someone literally earlier today and the significance of enrolling in this case, right, see your senior leadership or your colleagues in the C-suite or whatever it might be. And then also from a leadership standpoint, you know, if I'm trying to lead versus manage, right, both a managerial construct is required, right, of course. But if I'm trying to lead folks, I need to be properly setting context that they can strive towards versus just giving them rote commands. Because the more vision I can provide and context I can set of where we're striving towards versus telling them what to do, the more room I give them to fulfill their potential, really. And past that, you know, to not just stop at where my command ends, because if they're excited about where we're going and they believe in that vision and I've set that context, they'll continue, or at least that's my experience. Absolutely. So, Sester, I actually want to get into a little deeper about your current role at, at TIAA. Before we do, though, I just like to ask my guests favorite book or literary piece, either that you've been reading currently or all time, your choice. I'm a podcast junkie, love a lot of podcasts. My favorite one is Lex Friedman. I have it downloaded all the time because of my travels. I listen to a lot of Lex Friedman and a number of tech podcasts. That's my go to thing. In terms of books, in my recent reads, my favorite is Race After Technology by Dr. Ruha Benjamin. It's a fascinating, especially as we think about AI and its implications and the biases, the whole responsible AI, AI ethics, the diversity issues when it comes to AI. It's just eye-opening to see one person's experience explained in various examples. So it was fascinating. Hit Refresh is the other one that I liked in most recent times by Satya. 
obviously it's the whole story about his personal life as well as Microsoft in parallel. So that was pretty good. So those two are like my most recent favorites. Love it. So Sastry, you're at TIA now, been there since last Valentine's Day. What's your vision for IT and digital as it's derived from the overall mission of the organization? Yeah, I think again, I might keyword is context, right? So I think if you think about TIA as a company, which is 105 year old, it was started by Andrew Carnegie because he thought this was in 1918. He was surprised to see that teachers actually didn't have a pension plan and retirement plans. That was the genesis of TIA. It's a true mission driven company and hence the .org origins, even though we are not a true nonprofit at this point, but we serve a lot of nonprofits. Our clients are education. So we hired other forms of education. So those are our clients. We provide retirement solutions. We have healthcare as the other set of clients. Then we have nonprofits. So the mission is pretty powerful. The mission today is to deliver lifetime income for all with investments that make the world better. Because we manage north of $1.2, $1.3 trillion of assets under management. So technology strategy is frankly to power that mission, right? So we have our business strategy since the new CEO took over and we have assembled as an executive committee, it's a three-legged stool. We want to be leaders in lifetime income. We want to delight our clients and we want to strengthen how we operate as a 105-year-old company. So my technology strategy is to power those business strategic shifts, fuel innovation while transforming the goal. And at the third part is obviously very difficult to do in a large company with a lot of heritage and legacy systems. So I still have to deal with a lot of mainframes, I still have to deal with a lot of legacy systems that are like disparately placed. But at the same time, I have most cutting edge metaverse in the making and generative AI. So the diversity of technology and transforming that core while powering these business strategic shifts and fueling innovation with an out of the possible mindset. So essentially I have to solve for technology problems of yesterday, technology problems of today and technology problems of tomorrow. So that summarizes my technology strategy. And because I have the client services organization, which is the second half of my role, where we have people that serve clients all the way from frontline to middle office to back office to fraud and risk operations, et cetera, with large global capabilities as well in various locations that report to me. The one principal advantage I have in my role is I can cook a meal and experiment it with my own family because these are the people that actually use these products. So we actively experiment with some of these innovation use cases. That's to summarize my strategy to really power those business strategic ships, fuel innovation while transforming the club. Really exciting. Could you share, Sestri, some of the initiatives that roll up to that roadmap? Any that you might be able to share with us? Yeah, so I'll keep it at a higher level, up, especially on the business strategic shifts. So on the powering the business strategic shift. So we are the leaders in the United States, hired system for retirement solutions, which are called the 403B plans. So those are where we have been one of the founding fathers in the industry. We are expanding into the 401k market. So that's retirement solutions with institutions. So that's a big strategic shift that we have to really make a full impact, holistic impact on lifetime income solutions when it comes to retirement, because you know, people move that out in their jobs and careers. And so there is a continuum that you need to establish. So we see that as a huge opportunity to make a real impact. Just to give some stats on this, just the retirement problem statement, right? 
40% of the U.S. households will not have sufficient money to retire in the United States. This is a real problem. And the government actually is doing a lot in this space too. There's new policies, Secure 2.0, that are happening. 54% of Black Americans have less to retire. Women make 30% less compared to men in retirement income. So some of these are real problems, right? So we believe that considering our audience that we can make a true difference. So there is a number of retirement technology solutions and products that we're building. A couple of terms to introduce in this context, retired tech and silver tech. By retired tech, we mean when you are in the accumulation stage, you're actually building your retirement nested egg and there is technology that enables that. So this is like a subsidiary of your fintech broadly, right? And silver tech is you have accumulated, you're retired now, you're actually decumulating and you're taking that lifetime income page. So there is different solutions that you need to employ. A retired 73-year-old professor or an administrative staff from a university may not want to be on a computer, maybe on a computer, but may not want to be on a mobile phone. They definitely won't be in the metaverse as an example. How do you engage them and make sure that their life is streamlined while you have a Gen Z or a millennial who is only familiar with the digital medium of communication and working. That's an example. The other one we have is when calls are coming in into our client services, we've introduced AI more actively there because we feel that with the different generations that we are serving, we really need to learn the voice of the customer, kind of use that to enrich and customize the experiences. We've built a strategic partnership with Google as an example in this space that we went public with. So we have Google AI getting deployed largely without millions of participants and tens of thousands of institutions that we serve. AI is a huge focus for us. And then taking the client experience journeys and streamlining that end to end, because these are pretty tough journeys, right? And we've been writing contracts over time. So you as a participant with TI as an example, you may have multiple contracts, different types of constructs, right? So how do we give seamless experience? It's not like banking or payments where you can expect what the journey is. This is very difficult. There is a lot of financial jargon as well that people don't understand. What is an annuity? It's very hard to explain. A lot of these things, how do we simplify that with technology and encourage people to start saving early on while making it seamless experience for those who are retired and who are taking the savings? Last thing is really the tech transformation. So we have a seven-layer architecture that we are progressing to transform the technology, be it cloud-first, being AI-powered, data-driven, API-driven, delightful experience on the digital channel with an omni-channel point of view. So there's a lot of transformation that's happening on the tech front as well. You talked about some of them, but what would you say are the biggest challenges facing the organization in accomplishing some of this transformation that you're striving towards? Yeah, I think some of the business challenges that I've explained, it's definitely different types of clients and participants that we need to serve, different types of institutions that we need to work with. Some institutions are far more ready, some institutions are not as ready. So those complexities driven by client segmentation is one. The generations of technology that we deal with, as I explained earlier, it's like that, I think it was in New York Times or Wall Street Journal, the article where we introduced the best trains, the fast moving trains, but we never changed the tracks. So the trains actually can't travel on these tracks. It's like, we've well, got to change the trains, you've got to change the tracks, and you actually need to change the destinations quite a bit too. So 
there's a lot of moving parts and it's a lot of balance. So the biggest challenge is that balance. Like, how do you maintain that balance every day so that you're not just occupied by solving problems of yesterday or solving problems of today? That's the second challenge. The third is really culture. When you have a large organization, there is a lot of upskilling and reskilling. Going to my primary theme of this conversation that you have to really generate and drive and make it the active force within the culture, getting that level of upskilling because you can always bring catalyst talent from outside that have done this before, et cetera, et cetera. But that's not the way to sustain major transformations, right? So from a people leadership perspective, how do you take thousands of people organization and make sure that we are constantly reskilling and learning from each other, constantly getting our hands wet as we go through the transformation and then drive the innovation at scale. So that's like a, that's a very complex, but very fulfilling problem to solve. For sure. I was thinking about it too. There's a number of financial oh. institutions that I've either worked with or been aligned with over the years. I was just thinking back towards how oftentimes you'd see them trying to address a lot of the legacy technical debt and they were really just solely focused on that. But I love the, you guys are doing both at once where you're addressing that, but you're addressing the here and now and you're addressing the forward thinking stuff. But the more that I think about it, like the, the way that you explained it, I'm like, well, of course, no, that makes sense because you have to set yourself up where if you want that continuous kind of trajectory, that's really what's required. Otherwise, there's a, a dip every time you try to graduate to the next level. And it's a top-down mandate. We talk about two-speed models and agile teams. That's all great, but I don't think this can be solved bottoms up. This has to be a top-down mandate. So at least that's one thing we've done in my mind very well as a firm at TIA. It is a top-down mandate. We have Horizon 1, Horizon 2, Horizon 3 investments, and we are pretty serious about it. And we have support from the board. So things like generative AI, as an example, we can react fast because we don't have to scramble for resources and investments on a reactive basis because we've thought about it, that we know that there will be technologies that we have to continue to invest and incubate that are not today's technologies. Just because we've taken that top-down mandate, it made it a little bit more easy to actually navigate through. How do we actually evolve since the birth of ChatGPT in November last year? Crazy. That actually leads into my next question would be, what are some of those innovative things that are on the horizon that you're either piloting now or, or starting to roll out or on the roadmap? What maybe are some of the ones that you're most excited about? Yeah, one advantage we have as TIA is that our clients are higher ed institutes. There is a lot of research happening. You can name any emerging technology. Things that we know, things we don't even know yet are being incubated in these universities and in their academia industry partnerships, right? Whether it's AI or quantum computing, et cetera, et cetera. So we have a little bit of a differentiated advantage in that. And we have a very robust internship program as well. We do a very good job bringing into this year, we had over 52 universities in our internship program, but just within technology. We have incubated some hackathons for them. So with that context, We've created a TIA's client tech labs where we can not only work on technology innovation within our own company or our strategic partners that I mentioned, but we can also co-innovate with clients because at the end of the day, we are here to serve the client. So, so that connection point we have has really enabled a lot of innovation. A couple of examples I'll give you. 
specifically on generative AI. So we started our own generative AI capability and we, we named it Mr. Carnegie. It's using obviously different LLMs that are out there and fine tuning it for our industry and learning on our data. We started first deploying it internally. As an example, we are running our cyber phishing campaigns with Mr. Carnegie. It's pretty creative, by the way. <laughs> the email <laughs> that you get, you definitely want to triple check that link <laughs> before you click on it. But we are now putting this in more client-facing use cases, colleague-facing use cases. There's some obvious ones, like content creation as an example for marketers. But there's more interesting ones in our own industry for retirement. So that's definitely one that's definitely getting a lot of traction. But from a generative AI point of view, what we have in Web3 and Metaverse, there's a lot of open question marks on this one, but we've started our own Metaverse called Tiaverse. We are basically using that for on colleague onboarding, some of the hackathons that we are doing, especially for like younger tenure colleagues and associates that are joining. We do think that there will be opportunities with clients, especially like retirement awareness sessions and onboarding sessions, et cetera. Right now, we are more using that for our colleague facing activities. And we generally have a team called TIA Tech Tomorrow. So I call this T3. And under this genre, we've been running hackathons in these labs. So we have a lot of interns that we get, right? As I said, we basically gave them a challenge this year. We said, use generative AI to come up with solutions for retirement or asset management or wealth management. And we've had some fantastic success. And we actually have an award ceremony coming up in a couple of weeks where we will be announcing the winners and awarding them. So Sastra, I have a few last questions for you. One would be, where do you see the financial services industry going in the future? And what do you think will be perhaps some of the biggest changes as time passes with an understanding that you don't have a crystal ball, but any insights there? We all wish we had a crystal ball, right? So I still remember, and this is like another context setting moment for me. I still remember we used to do these drive to web campaigns because people at that time, this is the early days of internet and we were like going digital, every company is going digital. And then I'm sure I definitely went through this journey myself personally. Am I really going to bank? Even though I was leading technology transformation for payments company, am I really going to bank on an internet? Forget about phone. Eventually, of course, phone was the next evolution. So we all went through those journeys. We're going to go through those journeys a lot more and a lot more rapidly. That's the future in stock for us. And I often quote from Bill Gates, and I think it's worth recording here, which is we always overestimate the change that's going to happen in the next two years and underestimate the change that's going to happen in the next 10 years. That's true for any industry. Financial services is no exception. There is a lot of digitization in financial services that's happening across the board. Pandemic has taught us a lot on how to adapt. I mean, just take India as an example. It just leapfrogged as a country. Like there was basically no digital payment rails and now everything is digital. Like every time I travel on business or for personal reasons, the person that who sells vegetables on the street in a cart only accepts digital payments. So there is a leapfrogging moment that we will all go through. And I think financial services, especially with AI, there is going to be opportunities that problems that we didn't want to touch for many years because they're so ugly and We've supplemented it with processes and people and handoffs and paper clips. I think we will have a much bigger opportunity as an industry to change that course and le- really leapfrog. So it's not so much about the sizzle aspect of this, like that we see, which is obviously 
thoughts and experiences and all that good stuff. Like you ask any generative AI solution you, you want to name and it gives you intelligent responses and creates content and nice pictures and videos and all that. That's great. But I think the bigger price to me is like the core itself and how you could use this to leapfrog. Once you leapfrog, that's going to set a different course. So that's one item. The second item is, I think there will be new business models that are going to come out that we don't even know today. This is like, you go back to pre-gig economy, sharing economy, and you compare that to now, it's very different. We'll see different business models that are going to come, especially in financial services. And I think that'll be quite fulfilling to go through. And then jobs, right? I think jobs will change. I mean, there's a lot of industry studies now. There's a study that says 30% of the jobs will be automated by 2030. So in seven years, a third of the jobs will be automated. Whether we believe it or not, it's quite possible, right? So there will be new jobs that are going to come out that don't even exist today. Again, going back to my gig economy, sharing economy example. So I think new jobs, new business models, and the pace of change that you could use to leapfrog your core, and that's the bigger price. Super cool. So Sastri, this has been amazing. The last question I would have for you is a classic. If you could go back five, 10, or even 15 years in time, what advice would you give your younger self? Yeah, so I always use three L's, David, with my mentees. So I'll repeat them. Listen, learn, and lead authentically. The learning part, I think a lot of people recognize continual learning, and I recognized it along the way as well, but I'm quite intentional about it. So what happens is you may have an intentional learning task that you're constantly and subconsciously learning on the job or in any setting. Like, for example, I'm right now learning about microaggressions in a hybrid construct in person and on Zoom, et cetera. That's a tough one to learn on like through a training or an on-the-job type experiment, right? Intentionally, you got to learn every opportunity you have. So I think intentional learning is one thing that I wish I found like early stages of my career because I, I could have learned a lot more. But the other thing is really being authentic and true to yourself. When I started my career, there were frameworks defined. Like you are an engineer. This is the persona you have. And we expect these attributes from you. And you go to the early management career. Okay, these are the attributes we expect. Middle management, we work with so many colleagues that are young in their tenures. They don't have the same boundaries. The world has changed quite a bit. I wish I lived in that world or I wish I knew that in my younger self. Of course, being a mature leader now, I could be myself and I'm very comfortable being authentic. But I guess my advice to the listeners here is, you know, if you're in early stage, First of all, the world has changed a lot, so you could be a lot more authentic and true to yourself. But if you have any questions, remove that doubt and be yourself. Love it. Sastri, again, it was such a pleasure having you on. Thank you so much for taking the time. Thanks for having me, David. To our listeners, thank you for tuning in. We will catch you all next week. Thank you for listening to the Disruptive Innovators Champions of Digital Business podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a five-star review and subscribe to enjoy future episodes. This episode is brought to you by Disruptive Innovations, a leading tech consulting firm that helps enterprise organizations with their IT strategy, process optimization, and workflow improvement. Contact them and find out more at disruptiveinnovations.net.